Good morning, ladies Hi. and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Dave Deptula, AFA's Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And welcome to the release of our new report, Building a Force at Winds Recommendations for the 2020 National Defense Strategy. The report was researched and written by Mark Gunsinger, Mitchell's Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments, and Lucas Ottenried, a senior analyst here at the Mitchell Institute. Uh, both of whom are with us here today. As the title suggests, this report offers recommendations on three critical issues that the administration should address as it develops its next national defense strategy. The paper comes at a pretty critical time. The Biden administration recently submitted its first defense budget request that quite frankly, some of us think needs some serious adjustments based on the results of this study. Uh, we're also very honored to host with us today, Dr. Jim Miller and Bridge Colby on our panel. Uh, Jim is the president of Adaptive Strategies, LLC, and a former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2012 to 2014. Bridge is a principal at the Marathon Initiative and served as one of the principal authors of the 2018 National Defense Strategy when he was a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development. So welcome gentlemen, and thanks for joining us today. What we'll do is start with a presentation on the report, um, followed by uh, brief remarks from our guest panels, panelists, and then we'll move on to questions and answers. So over to you, Gonzo, for the presentation. Okay, thank you, General Deptula, and thanks also to Jim and Bridge. Uh, bring up the cover slide, please. It's uh, great to have you all join us today. So we're gonna start with a brief overview of our report. And I'll give you some context first. There's been a lot of debate over the 2022 defense budget proposal and how it does or does not align with the national defense strategy. Now our report addresses why our military must selectively increase the size of some of its forces and field new capabilities that are going to be critical to feeding great power aggression as required by the defense strategy. The bottom line is, there is no time for DED to ramp up production of new capabilities and grow its forces in the event of a great power conflict. By the time DED does that, China or Russia will have achieved their objectives and the consequences would have a devastating impact on the United States and its allies and friends. So in this context, we believe DED's proposed budget frankly continues the say-do gap between its own strategic guidance and the actions it is taking to address its priorities. We see this in the slowdown and fielding of some next generation capabilities, the failure to defend our forward bases against air and missile attacks, and more cuts to forces that are already too small to fight a single great power conflict, plus defend the homeland, deter nuclear attacks, and meet other defense strategy requirements. Next slide. So right to the point, our report addresses three things as mentioned by General Deptula, that DOD's next defense strategy should address to decrease the risk of failure in a future peer conflict. First, we recommended DOD not assume away the potential that China would take advantage of our military's well-known force structure and modernization shortfalls to wage an extended duration war that is intended to exhaust our capacity to fight. Simply said, sizing and shaping our military for a short war with China is a recipe for failure. Second, DOD should return to a two-war planning requirement for sizing and shaping the U.S. military. 
in combination, sizing for one war and a relatively short one at that, sends our adversaries the exact wrong message and could even invite the aggression we seek to deter. And finally, DOD needs new all-domain warfighting concepts that will inform cross-service trade-offs that are going to be critical to developing a cost-effective war-winning force of the future. Next slide. So on to the meat. As Bridges explained in the past, the 2018 defense strategy says defeating a Chinese or Russian invasion of a U.S. ally or friend is the most stressing challenge for sizing and shaping the U.S. military. Well, why is that so? Well, China and Russia will have the advantage of proximity to the battle space and plausible scenarios such as an assault on Taiwan or invasion of the Baltic states. And as this illustration shows, China will be the home team while we are an away force they must project and sustain operations over very long distances from the U.S. And this can give our adversaries major advantages in terms of time, the ability to quickly mass combat power in the battle space, shorter logistics line of, of communication. And let's not forget, these areas are covered by their A280 capabilities, which are intended to prevent U.S. forces from intervening in time. Next slide. DoD also created a new force employment model that explains how layers of forces will deter aggression, shape the battle space, blunt to invasion, and surge to defeat, and of course, defend our homeland. But I'd like to stress just a couple of points that are important to understanding how this shapes our military's requirements. First, defeating a fait accompli is far better than trying to evict or roll back an enemy that has seized its objective, like the U.S. coalition did in 1991, against Iraqi forces occupying Kuwait. China and Russia are not Iraq, and the massive level of force needed to do this in the Baltics or to liberate Taiwan would be prohibitive, especially against a nuclear-armed opponent. Second, denying a fait accompli will require U.S. forces that can quickly deploy and operate over long ranges from inside and outside a theater. When I say quickly, I mean within 24 hours, the start of a conflict. And third, U.S. forces must be prepared to operate in environments that will remain contested throughout a campaign. Again, a conflict against China or Russia will not be like recent wars where we're able to quickly gain and maintain control over the air, sea, space, and cyberspace domains. So this all translates to the need for more capabilities such as long-range strike systems, fifth-generation aircraft that can survive in contested areas, electronic warfare capabilities to degrade enemy threats, missile defenses to protect a theater, air bases, and so on. DoD has failed to invest in many of these capabilities over the last 30 years, or at least invest sufficiently. And its latest budget indicates it still isn't serious about going faster and fielding some of them. Next slide. So with this background, let's talk about the risk resourcing our military for a short war. Our report illustrates this with a few examples, like the one shown here, where about 60% of the Air Force's fighters in the Pacific to blunt a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. So pick your attrition rate on this chart. At 5% attrition per day, about 236 fighters remain operational at the end of a notional fait accompli denial operation. And you can see the trend gets even uglier should the fight last beyond 19 days. Now, DoD hasn't had to think about high attrition rates for years, and it certainly hasn't sized its forces for them. Plus, the rates shown on this slide are not unreasonable. For context, the Israeli Air Force suffered an aircraft loss or damage rate of about 4.8% during their first week 
of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. In a 1974 Defense Science Board study applied nutrition rates from that conflict to a European scenario that concluded that U.S. and NATO Air Forces could be decimated in a general war with the Warsaw Pact within two weeks. A couple of caveats here. We assumed on this slide that 44% of the 2030 force will be fifth generation fighters. And that's pretty optimistic given it's now only about 20% uh, fifth gen fighters. And we also didn't include Chinese missile attacks on US air bases, which could easily double these loss rates. We identify this as a major concern since the army continues to refuse to defend US air bases against air missile attacks. Next slide. Of course, it's not just about having enough aircraft, ships and other major weapon systems. DED's chronic shortfall in PGMs is another major source of risk. And this example shows how B-52s alone could use up about half of the Air Force's total planned inventory of JASM and Lorazm missiles against Chinese targets in a little over a week. And JASM and Lorazm, of course, are DOD's premier air launch weapons that have the low observability needed to penetrate defended areas and strike high-value targets, such as mobile missile launchers, in the case of Lorazm, of course, PLA and EV ships. So similar to the last example, this burn rate could be conservative since we only use B-52s to launch these missiles, while the reality is but other bombers and fighters will as well. So a U.S. commander might exhaust these weapons in just a few days of fighting with China. And that means strike aircraft may have to use other PGMs that can be more readily intercepted by Chinese defenses or weapons that would actually increase aircraft's exposure to enemy threats. And that would increase aircraft attrition rates, reduce the tempo of our strikes, and of course, extend the window of opportunity for an enemy to win. Next slide. So we recommend the next defense strategy require some of the services to organize, train, and equip for a longer duration fight with China. Specifically, we recommended defeating a Chinese fait accompli may not be enough. Our military must also be capable of a follow-on operation such as a punishment operation that attacks the PLA's ability to continue to project conventional military power. And we illustrate potential targets for a punishment campaign in this triangle, such as the PLA's bomber and fighter bases, maritime forces, long-range missile launchers, and, and so on. Now, since the conflict with China would be air, sea, space, and cyberspace domain dominant, the predominant force providers for a punishment operation would be the Air Force, Space Force, and the Navy. Bluntly stated, it would not be a boots on the ground fight between land forces. Next slide. And that brings us to our second area of risk, which is sizing the force for a single peer conflict. I'd like to start by pointing out the little table in the upper left-hand side of the slide, which illustrates DOD's force planning construct. Note the right-hand column includes requirements to defeat aggression by a single major power, which we've highlighted in red, defend the home land, deter nuclear, non-nuclear attacks, et cetera. The sizing for one war increases risk that a second peer aggressor could take advantage of our military's engagement in another theater and make a move that we simply would not have the forces, the munitions, the logistics, and other capabilities to respond to effectively. And the rest of the slide shows a notional Russian invasion of the Baltic states, which has been the subject of multiple war games. But the point is, DD should not ignore the risk the second peer aggressor would take advantage of a situation where our one war military is engaged in another theater. 
Next slide. And just a couple of illustrations emphasize the potential magnitude of those force capacity shortfalls should that happen. Now, DOD already has a major shortfall in long-range strike capacity, especially a shortfall in stealth bombers that can penetrate and deliver large payloads of weapons. And the left-hand column in this slide projects the Air Force may have about 109 bombers available for combat missions in 2030. That's our projection. And that's an increase from today's 86 primary mission bombers, which is a new all-time low for the Air Force. The middle column shows that force might have a shortfall of about 77 bombers for a fight with China, plus maintain enough aircraft for homeland to deter nuclear attacks. And then the right-hand column adds a conflict with Russia, which nearly doubles the size of the shortfall. And this is why multiple analyses have shown the bomber force, which gives U.S. commanders the ability to immediately go on the offensive against an evading force, should grow to at least 240 stealth bombers, plus, of course, the existing B-52s. Next slide. And it's a similar story for the Air Force's fighter force. And this example is also based on classified analysis. Uh, what these columns don't show is the mix of fourth and fifth generation fighters in the 2030 forces I mentioned. A future high-low force mix that is skewed more towards fourth generation fighters will result in increased attrition rates in combat. Plus, the Air Force no longer has a reserve of fighters that can roll out to replace combat losses and also has a significant pilot shortfall today. And it really has no margin to absorb these losses, and it would take years to replace highly trained combat to the loss of combat. And that's why we think trading force capacity for new capabilities is a high-risk endeavor. The fact is the Air Force and the other services have already traded as capacity for capability numerous times over the last 30 years. And frankly, now it needs more of both. Next slide. So the question of cost inevitably arises, by which I mean the cost to rebuild a two-war force. It doesn't have to be as costly as some might think, since growth should be selective and based on the predominant forces that commanders will need for a fight in the Pacific and another one in Europe. As a first principle, we recommend that DoD as a whole, not every service, should have a two-war force. So the next defense strategy should define pacing scenarios that each service should use to size and shape their forces. Next slide. In the case of the Navy Marine Corps, a fight with China should drive their future requirements since it will be sea, air, space, and cyberspace the main dominant. Next slide. And the Army should primarily size and shape for a European fight since defeating a Russian invasion of an area like the Baltics would be land, air, space, and cyberspace domain dominant. Next slide. And the Air Force should be sized for both theaters, since Pacific and European commanders will need Air Forces that can rapidly respond from inside and outside the theater to launch those high-volume strikes in, against invading forces and perform other missions to ensure victory. Now I'm going to turn the stick over to Lucas for a minute. Next slide. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So the third area of risk our report addresses is the lack of current joint warfighting concepts that can provide a foundation for making trade-offs that maximize the combat effectiveness of future joint force operation. Really, there are two elements to this. The first is that the joint staff's joint warfighting concept is late to need. Now, we've had three successive defense budget requests that were supposed to focus on the 2018 defense strategy's priorities, yet the service have lacked a shared understanding of how they intend to fight together against a peer adversary in the future. This has been a real missed opportunity. And second, 
we're finding concepts that are the product of the joint staff's consensus-driven doctrine development process are typically laden with each of the services equities. Now, this increases the risk that DOD will waste resources on excessively redundant programs while exacerbating existing capability gaps like missile defense, which Mark mentioned before. Now, this kind of joint warfighting concept will support, instead of challenge, the ambitions of the services that each believe they need more top line to implement their individual visions and operating concepts. And quite simply, this is not going to be affordable given the flat or declining defense budgets we expect moving forward. Next slide, please. So we feel a better approach would be first, rather than a single concept to develop a series, to develop a series of all domain operating concepts that account for key differences and potential conflicts with China and Russia. And second, that these concepts maximize our military's overall combat power rather than reinforce the service's individual equities. Now, this should entail conducting cost per effect analyses to determine cross-service trade-offs. Or in other words, DOD should develop all domain warfighting concepts using a process that also assesses the business cases for candidate approaches and prioritizes those that will maximize the US military's mission effectiveness. And we feel that long-range strike offers a great example of why this type of analysis is necessary. You know, all the services operating concepts emphasize the need for a new generation of long-range strike systems to counter A2AD threats and to create other effects in contested battle spaces. And they're all developing those capabilities accordingly. However, the truth of the matter is not all long-range strike capabilities are created equal. Now, this chart compares the cost of a notional army long-range hypersonic weapon battery with a new stealth bomber and an existing B-52 bomber. As, it, as you can see on the left side of the graph, we started with the fixed cost to acquire the LRHW battery and new stealth bomber, as well as their operations and support costs for a 30-year period. Now, there's no acquisition cost for the B-52 since buffs are already in the force, although we did factor in the cost to re-engine it and perform other upgrades to the Air Force's plan for the aircraft. Now, as you move from left to right across the chart, we added the cost of munitions expended by each type of platform. As you can see, the cost of the LRHW option quickly exceeds the cost of both the bomber options. Uh, in fact, the number of weapons expended by the bombers at the crossover points identified by the uh, red arrows are roughly what each bomber could carry in a single sortie. Now, if you extrapolate this out to the likely number of aim points in a conflict with Russia or China, you can see why air launch effects must deliver the preponderance of strikes and why you know, very long range uh, ground-based fires could quickly become unaffordable beyond a niche capability. So we recommend that DOD conduct similar kinds of analyses to inform its investment decisions. And critically, these assessments should be domain, service, and platform agnostic, focusing instead on how best to achieve mission goals in future operations. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Mark for some uh, concluding thoughts. Mark. Just two quick slides to wrap up. Uh, this is uh, what we've already talked about, our three recommendations. Theory of victory should also hedge against the Chinese decision to continue operations that would exhaust US military. Returning to a two-war force-sizing construct to deter hedge against a second opportunistic aggressor. And we think that DOD's senior civilian as well as military leadership should be directly involved in creating those all-domain warfighting concepts. So help provide a foundation for those cross-service and cross-domain uh, trade-offs. Next slide. We think a good place to start in developing those concepts would be to conduct a focused review of the services, roles, and missions. And do that at the front end, not at the back end. Uh, here are three areas we think are ripe for that uh, review, future long-range strike force providers, responsibility to air-based air missile defense, a long-running issue that has remained unresolved, 
And so with that, uh, uh, our report will be online immediately after this presentation. And I look forward to your questions. General Natula, back to you. Yeah, no, thanks very much, uh, Gonzo and uh, Lucas, for that. Um, let me uh, turn it over to uh, Dr. Uh, Jim Miller for uh, your comments, sir, on the topic. Uh, many thanks, Dave, and thanks to the Mitchell Institute for hosting this morning and to Gonzo and Lucas for a very thoughtful report. I think it's an important contribution to the debate, and I hope folks uh, who are uh, on the line here today uh, read it closely and, and, and heed its analysis and recommendations. I agree with uh, virtually all of the report's main premises and recommendations that the US needs a, a two war force planning construct that addresses both China and Russia, that we need to be prepared for a protracted conflict, uh, and that some new conceptual and all domain thinking is necessary. I would just caveat the last by, by saying, I don't think we need to spend two years developing new concepts to make decisions about how to allocate resources. Uh, and I don't think we need to do a roles and missions analysis to reallocate resources. Uh, it's fine to do those in parallel, but there are a lot of changes that we know we need today uh, and that this report points out. I'm going to add uh, uh, three points to it. They're not uh, pushing back really on the report's analysis and recommendations. They're intended to be additive. Uh, the first point is that DOD planning needs to take account of both the most likely and the most dangerous approaches to armed aggression from China and from Russia. Neither China nor Russia wants a, a large-scale war with the United States. Indeed, neither one of them wants a war with the United States. They'd like to win, if possible, by undermining our alliance cohesion, our credibility, and our will. So uh, even as we, be, as we undertake the types of steps that, uh, that this report recommends for long-range strike and related capabilities, we need to think hard about the likely and indeed, in some ways, ongoing scenarios involving coercion and subversion. The next level up could involve China blockading Taiwan, hitting it with unremitting cyber attacks, perhaps even missile strikes or special forces. It could involve Russia sending little green men uh, into the Baltics. Uh, it could involve, in both cases, significant cyber and information warfare. And even as the Department of Defense and the nation prepare for the high intensity conflict uh, uh, that this report addresses, we need to also address uh, in parallel uh, improving our posture for this unconventional warfare threat, the one that we're facing today, the one that we are uh, not just likely, but virtually certain to see. Um, second, uh, second, I want to uh, build off the important point that in order to do better on the denial of a fait accompli and to deal with the risk of escalation, we need to turn the dial way up on uh, long range strike, including platforms and munitions. Uh, supporting ISR and, and resilient command and control, and on cyberspace, outer space, electron, electromagnetic spectrum as well. And so I think the reports got very good recommendations there. And that's going to be a fair bit of resources that need to be reallocated. Uh, and what I and I think that reports right about the that in the European theater, ground forces will play an essential role. It's important to note it's predominantly the ground forces that are there today. It's predominantly our forward presence and our allies' capabilities. And building out those capabilities, ground forces, uh, tactical air, et cetera, uh, uh, and making them resilient to both subversive attacks, cyber attacks, and to direct kinetic attack is going to be incredibly important. And the point I want to emphasize uh, that I would add to this report 
is that for the Indo-Pacific theater, for China in particular, undersea warfare is absolutely critical for the United States. Our SSN4 structure has gone down substantially over the last couple of decades. Uh, the four SSGNs that carry cruise missiles are slated to go out of service within the next decade. Uh, and uh, this is an area of potential enduring US advantage. We need to build out our undersea force structure. And because of the costs associated with uh, building more SSNs in particular, it means the Navy should turn the dial up on unmanned uh, undersea vehicles uh, that provide basically an undersea arsenal ship. I think there's uh, doable concepts there and the cost of those unmanned vehicles is likely to be far less than for manned SSNs. That's additive to the report uh, and it adds to the budgetary pressure of meeting the report's uh, strategic analysis. And the third point I'd make, uh, again, starting with the report's analysis, escalation is, is, is certainly possible. And I believe the DOD and indeed the nation need to analyze this and game it out and unpack it a little bit. So just as there are, I think, a most likely most dangerous approach for conflict, I think that the most likely escalation scenario, uh, or one of the most likely, may be that China or Russia would decide to dial up cyber attacks on the U.S. homeland. They could do other things, but this is certainly one that looks attractive, and we're seeing every every signal, literally, you know, literally today, that they have that capability and they're growing it out. I think cyber attacks, and and for that matter, attacks on space assets and undersea assets, including undersea cables, is far more likely than large-scale conventional attacks, let alone nuclear attacks on the United States. We still need to deter those conventional nuclear attacks, of course, but we have a long way to go on cyber and space resilience, first to support the war fight, secondly to support this escalation scenario or set of scenarios in which uh, both China and Russia could attempt to impose economic costs while they reduce the capabilities of our military through cyberspace and outer space. Uh, and, uh, I, and, I, and I wanted, you know, finally on, on this uh, call out to the Biden administration for, for putting out a concept for integrated deterrence, uh, by which I think it means uh, not just integrated military tools, but comprehensive national tools that gets to our credibility, that gets to our ability to impose diplomatic costs and economic sanctions and so forth. Those are fundamentally important. They're not sufficient without taking the military steps that this report outlines, and I think is the, the baseline for where we should go. Uh, but I, I want to call out that the administration is on a good track there, and I, I hope that it pushes further. So uh, uh, Dave, Gonzo, Lucas, I'll stop there and look forward to further conversation. Uh, thanks very much for your comments, uh, Jim. Uh, Bridge, over to you. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, uh, Mark and Lucas, uh, for a really uh, a great report. I, I think I don't. I have some some issues, some differences, but I think this is exactly what the conversation the debate we should be having within this, this framework. So I really, and um, it's also just really refreshing for, for you guys, you really grappled with the NDS as it actually is. And that sometimes <laughs> I get a little frustrated, but but you guys really understand it. And and I think are, are getting at the tough issues, which are which are very real ones. Um, I, I'm, it's great that, that my great friend and, and, and mentor, Jim Miller went first, cause I'm gonna, there'll be a nice little uh, a difference uh, parting of ways that I think will illuminate some of the key issues here. You know, I think I think that conf and I'll uh, point to my, my friend Matt Donovan in the chat. I think put it very well. Um, you know, I, there is a real pro uh, danger in the near to medium term, and I think China and Russia 
actually could go to war. I, I don't think it's a given that they that they won't want war, but that they could risk it or use it for coer coercive purposes or even or even enter into it deliberately uh, if they see the advantage to do so. Uh, and that will give them political leverage in, in any case. So I think this is the real, you know, to me, the most likely scenario is not actually the one that's less provocative. It may be the more provocative one if that pays off for them, uh, for, for red, as, as we all we all say it. So that's the kind of the mindset. Of course, the long term is also extremely problematic given the trajectory, particularly of Chinese power. But, we, you know, one of the things I think the 2018 NDS was trying to signal was we're going to have problems. China is not a long term problem anymore. Now it's a near problem. It is a long term problem, but it's also a near term problem. So a couple of thoughts. You guys are exactly right about protraction. And, you know, I think, uh, and, and, and Jim, I think, has made this point to me. Sometimes I've been accused, and some of my colleagues have been accused for maybe oversimplifying. And, and if we did that with the Fete accompli, I'm, I'm prepared to, to plead guilty on the charge because I think it was urgent enough. But you're absolutely right that protraction is a critical issue. I, I would just say that the Fete accompli, you know, getting the Fete accompli right is the ticket to entry for the protraction problem. You're not going to have a protraction problem. And I know you guys know that. But I would just say, we're not where we need to be on the Fete accompli, as you guys know. I mean, your munitions charts are, are showing that. And it's just so frustrating. And, and we've got a lot of bipartisan agreement. I mean, Deputy Secretary Hicks, Undersecretary Call, uh, uh, the nominee for Assistant Secretary for Asia, Eli Ratner put in his APQs for his hearing, I think today or tomorrow, um, you know, General uh, or Admiral Aquilino. Everybody's saying it, and yet here we are. We're still not where we need to be. And I know that was Matt's question that maybe we, hopefully we can get to. But I think we got to deny. But then I think you're absolutely right about protraction. I think protraction is the top priority dealing with that. I think you're right. And actually, in my book that uh, maybe I'll get to, to pitch at some point during this uh, uh, is uh, I actually call it denial come punishment. I think you refer to it as punishment. But actually, I think the way that you're talking about it, it's kind of a mixture. It's strict denial for the Fed plea, which is we want to win that within limited, you know, plausible limits. And then it's going to be, we're going to deny presumably some capacity for them to regenerate the invasion capability or otherwise strike. But ultimately, the sort of victory mechanism is a form of punishment. It's, it's the steady erosion of something that they value uh, and an acceptance of a limited defeat, I think is to me how I, I think about it. It seems like it's similar, actually. I, I'm, it's validating, actually, to see you guys come out of the same, the same place. But the kind of targets that you're talking about are you know, it's not area bombing of cities, obviously. So, so I think, and that makes perfect sense. And I think that is, that's what we need, you know, Air Force and we need penetrating strike, obviously Navy is Air Space Force as well. I, you know, I agree with you in principle about the two war force, sure, but we're not where we want to be on the one war. You know, I mean, <laughs> we got to get one more right. I mean, sure, two war is great, but I mean, your point about how, how much of a deficit we have on heavy bombers, Munitions uh, deficits. Jim mentioned the submarine bathtub. We're way behind just on the one war, and it's getting worse. I mean, I look at Tom Shugart's testimony to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The trend lines are even worse. So I'm thinking, sure, yeah, may, in theory, but if I'm orienting my money, I'm saying we got to win the big war, and the biggest war that we got to win, and that includes protraction, is China and Asia, because Russia can't plausibly dominate the whole region. There will be balancing. There is risk there. But I, I want to make sure that we get that right, China and Asia, first. And I think I'm not as convinced as you that there will be the savings you suggest by orienting the services, because it sort of seems like they're kind of looking you know, at regions already. I don't think they're all preparing for that. I could be wrong. But, but and I, you know, just, OK, so is the money there? I don't see the American people 
saying it. I mean, given where the administration's budget is, where inflation is, um, you know, maybe we'll get hopefully an incremental increase in the top line based on uh, on the Pentagon's budget request, the administration's. But I, you know, I don't think we're talking about the levels that we need, and I'm not sure it would make sense. You know, I mean, given the, the impact it could have on the economy, I, I don't know. Um, I, but I don't think that means we ignore the problem. But this is where. I think we need our allies to step up. I mean, it's completely inexcusable and unsatisfactory that European allies are not contributing 2%. I mean, most, and I've got a piece, I say this to the Germans directly, I've got a piece in a German defense magazine coming out. You gotta hit 2% and whatever that number is to be able to, to, to generate most of the combat power for a conventional defense of Europe. Look, we can still buy a little bit of, I think air force capacity, space capacity, that kind of thing to help any European fight, of course, our nuclear deterrent. But I mean, this is a completely unsustainable situation. I think we we have to, you know, look at that in the face. At the same time, we need to put pressure on the Japanese and the Chinese, uh, excuse me, the Japanese and the Taiwans to do more uh, so that we can mitigate the simultaneity problem, which is very, very real. But I guess my point of view is I don't think there's any way we're going to be able to have a simultaneity force. We can mitigate the dilemma, but it's going to remain. And in that context, I really want to make sure that we get China and Asia right. Uh, and I'll take risk in the second in the second theater. And then really we should, in my view, and some of you may have heard me say this, if you're not working on denial of China, of China in, in the Western Pacific, sustaining the nuclear deterrent or a more cost-efficient way to do counterterrorism, I think you should be get, looking for a new job, whether in the military or out. That's the level of prioritization we need to have. And I, you know, both acro across administrations, I'm not sure we're there, but that makes the, 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 the need to focus all the greater. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you uh, both uh, for your insightful remarks. Um, we're now going to dig into some of the points that uh, you raised in uh, greater detail, but I, I cannot stop. I have to comment. I have to make a couple of comments. Um, Jim, very much appreciate your points. And in particular, I'll, I'll raise the one that, you know, when we talk about the pillars of national security, the dime model, the diplomacy, information, military, and economic piece, it's interesting that we have cabinet level agencies to deal with three out of that three out of the four, but we don't have an, even have a sub agency to work the information piece. Uh, and I know it's a subject for an, it's a, an entirely different discussion, but that is one that is absolutely critical because we have information being used against us as a weapon by the Chinese and the Russians all the time. Um, bridge with respect to your comments, um, you know, I agree. And I mean, overall, the subject that we're dealing with is uh, the department writ large relative to our adversaries um, is underfunded. It's a huge argument. The balance between guns versus butter uh, is, is one that uh, goes back a long way. Uh, but I think we need to begin discussing more and more and more what are the consequences for our domestic economy if we lose in the next major regional conflict. Uh, because uh, that's what we're uh, approaching. And I'm afraid that might be what it takes to wake up uh, the nation to the importance to, uh, uh, to adequately fund um, our uh, military challenges. Because I don't think people are aware of the significant rapid acceleration of the capabilities of the Chinese. So with that, let me now transition a bit to uh, expand on some of the issues that were already raised. Bridge. As I mentioned in the opening, you're one of the principal authors of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. If you look back on that strategy three and a half years later, 
What would you say still works well and what might you change or update given how things have played out? Thanks, Dave. I mean, I think, um, actually, I think the protraction issue is the critical one. I think we did make hard choices. Obviously, the, the strategy itself, I mean, I think Mark used my testimony into the SAS from 19, which hopefully gives people a, a clear insight into what we're talking about. I think one of the biggest issues that we weren't able to really get at, that we talked about a bit, but was this time, time question. Um, you know, where the third offset, which I, you know, was a big fan of in a lot of ways, but it was very long-term oriented and also very technology oriented. I think one of the things we want to do with the, the 2018 NDS, and Secretary Mattis, of course, in particular, was pull back that, that very long-term focus. And I think you see that question now with the reaction to PDI and CAPE's apparent view uh, on, on some of these forward investments. And I think uh, Matt's question in the, in the chat as well. I mean, my view is we need to cover down in the near to medium term because there may be a window of vulnerability, even as there's Long-term, very serious danger. It's possible China will collapse or have clay feet. I'm not betting on it, and I think you're right, Dave. That the, you know, I mean, one of the one of the well, one of the biggest frustrations I had with the 2018 NDS. I wish it could be more open. You know, I mean, we we need that clarion call of uh, uh, not only to ourselves but to our allies, uh, which I think the message got through, but it could have been could have been clearer. So the near-term, long-term thing, and I think that's there. There are hard choices. I mean, do we you know Guam defense system? Right. I mean, we need air based defense. Obviously, we need, you know, command post defense. But is Aegis the right system or, you know, whatever exactly PACOM's pitching? It's a hard call. But I mean, we can't leave ourselves vulnerable uh, in the near term. But other than that, I think, you know, look, I, I'm biased. Somebody was accused me yesterday of being a stick in the mud. I guess on that one, I, I you know, I think I think we did all right. But I mean, strategy is it's a, it's a, obviously uh, I sound like a fortune cookie, but it's, it's sort of a, a waypoint. You know, I mean, it's always changing and, and red is adapting and, and green. The biggest other period, and I'm sorry to go on, but I think the thing I'm thinking about a lot is how do we how do we do the allies and partners in, in a better way? We've tried, I, I you know, kind of joke, we've done passive aggressive, we've done berating. Now we're trying, you know, sweetness and light. You know, it, it, I'm not sure it moves the needle that much one or the other, but we got to get our allies to do more. I mean, we can't have Japan at 1%. We can't have Germany at barely above 1%. But let's let's figure out a better way to do that. That's that's a that's a more integrated question, but critical. Yeah, no, and if I might, you know, back to the issue or the challenges that we all recognize in terms of not having sufficient U.S. funding, a potential solution is one that you just hit on, and that's to rely on our allies to a greater degree and get them further integrated into uh, collective defense, if you will. But I know that's a whole nother, you know. Uh, bag of worms. I just also want to highlight the fact that both of you raised and Matt also the near-term challenges that we have. But if you go and you look at the current budget submission, what do we do? What, what do the services do? They raid their munitions accounts to free up money to invest in other stuff. Sorry. Okay, Jim. Um, the National Defense Strategy Commission uh, made the statement a while back about uh, needing three to 5% annual real growth rate uh, to support that uh, uh, 2018 National Defense Strategy. And now we've seen the Biden administration's first budget request, which essentially is flat in real terms. And it's pretty unlikely the defense budget's gonna grow uh, over the next couple of years. It's interesting that the, the FIDEP was not included in the current release. Um, wh what are your thoughts on how this year's budget request aligns with the, 
the 18 national defense strategy and what might it signal in the way of changing priorities in the next Dave, I'd just make three quick points. The first is that um, perhaps unsurprisingly, given where, <laughs> where I've come from, and uh, I see a lot of good in the Biden administration defense budget. The prioritization of homeland defense, including nuclear deterrence, uh, including homeland defense uh, with a next generation interceptor. Uh, these are foundational capabilities and for the homeland defense job. No one else will do that for us. We can't ask our allies to do that. We need to do that right. So protecting those areas and including with the you know, triad and, and national defense is fundamentally important. Um, it grows hypersonics, it grows ISR, it grows command and control. Those are all positive. I see it as a down payment in many of these areas. Uh, and now I'll, I'll be, my other two comments are somewhat less positive. We are not accelerating long range strike uh, munitions and supporting ISR and command and control as we, not only as we could, but as we need to. Uh, and just to be clear, we're talking about additive here. Defeating one fate accompli, if we use the ACMANIC criteria, the ability to kill 350 ships or 2,500 tanks and armored vehicles, we are so far short of that today in either theater. It is appalling. Uh, and that deserves to be first priority. I agree with Bridge. The protracted conflict is largely additive because it's significantly about long range strike. The, defeating the second fate accompli is significantly additive because it's significantly about uh, long range strike, including in all cases in a very active A2, AD environment where you're going to have attrition as report points out. So there is a need for a significant reorientation. Uh, I hope that the continuing reviews will, will uh, highlight this point and put a lot of resources to getting after uh, the capability for long-range strike in an A2AD environment in the first 72 hours. Uh, I don't think we need new concepts and experimentations I don't on this. I don't think we need a roles and missions debate on this. I think we need to buy a lot more capability and deploy it. And what that means, my third point is, okay, if you're going to spend tens, many tens of billions of dollars, perhaps uh, getting into triple-digit toward 100 plus billion dollars on these sets of capabilities, long range strike munitions, uh, ISR command and control and making it cyber and space resilient. Uh, either you're gonna grow the budget a lot uh, and or you're gonna make some very difficult choices. And I think that, so that, that, that means that getting agreement on the Hill is gonna be fundamentally important because even if we were at the three to 5% NDS levels, we still have hard choices. And without that, we have even harder choices. Uh, and to me, it means hard choices within each of the services. And here I, I differ slightly in that I would take risk on fourth gen air uh, to, to ramp up on fifth gen air and to sustain the bomber force as because they're bigger, bigger trucks. I'll take, I want, if I'm gonna have a non-stealthy truck, I want it to be a big one. Uh, uh, it's really hard to, you know, as the Navy's attempting to grow its, its surface combatants. And it did take some initial steps with, uh, with LCS to, to, you know, to bring it down. Um, the, uh, a ship that's launching aircraft or missiles is going to be a big, fat, juicy target uh, in a great power conflict. And we need to focus much more on undersea and obviously on Army force structure, some very hard choices to make. Uh, and they can't be made willy-nilly. And they, they, they need to be, if you will, made with a scalpel, not with a hacksaw. Okay, fine. But they need to be substantial and sustained over time to create a wedge that makes room for these other investments that we absolutely know that we need to deter great power aggression. 
Hey, Jim, uh, Mark here, real quick. Um, on the roles of missions and on the new operating concepts, uh, I agree with you. We need decisions and not just more prolonged reviews and development of theoretical concepts that take three years and never make any progress. Those are vehicles to decisions, yes, but I agree we cannot wait to do the kinds of things you're talking about, to increase resources of those kinds of capabilities. We need a bridging strategy that starts that now, and the others will come. On air and missile defense in particular, DoD has to sort out who is going to defend our four theater air bases, or we're not going to be able to generate the kind of combat power we need to defeat fait accomplis, et cetera. All right, thanks, gentlemen. Um, let me give you both uh, uh, one more before we open it up to the audience. So this is for both of you, uh, Jim and Bridge. The recently completed G7 summit uh, serves as a reminder that a key U.S. strategic advantage, our partners and allies, both of you have hit on that before. Um, what could the United States do to rely more on the capabilities provided by our allies and partners? Uh, and, you know, I think I already know you, some of you touched on this, you know, should they contribute more uh, to offset some of these, some of our military's capability and capacity shortfalls? Either one of you. Okay, uh, Bridge, I'll go first and then you can uh, augment, correct and uh, amend as you see fit. Uh, uh, again, I'd say, I'd say three things here. First is that the political relationships are fundamentally important. I think President Biden's trip to NATO is a good start having Secretary of State and SecDef Blinken and Austin go to Seoul and Tokyo early on is a good start. I expect this administration will follow through there. And part of that political relationship is asking the hard questions as hard asks, you need to invest more. Uh, Taiwan needs to do more to improve its resilience to cyber and sabotage, for example. Uh, uh, Germany needs to not just increase its defense budget, but increase its capabilities in, in my view, and so on. So um, that's thing one. Thing two uh, is, that, uh, is that we can understand that there's a, a little opportunity or a significant opportunity for a division of labor here. Uh, in that the U.S. has unique capability to bring not just global assets, but space, uh, cyberspace, uh, high-end electronic warfare uh, assets to bear, as long as, as as well as strike capacity that can both some of which can be within the bubble, the A2AD bubble, if you will, but much of which can come from outside, uh, and so be more survivable. And so, thinking about those allied concepts uh, as well. And since I raised the, er the issue earlier about dealing with unconventional warfare, say this is particularly important that our allies and partners step up to their efforts on unconventional warfare. Fundamentally, it's, an, it's first and foremost, that's a political informational fight. They need to do better. We can need to work with them and help them, but they need to do, to, to do better. Uh, and third, um, you know, I was part of a export control reform effort under, under Secretary Gates. I felt at the time we got about a half a loaf I think that, that the, the part that we got has shrunk over time. We need to be able to export uh, the most, the, uh, not just F-35, but many more of our high, very high-end systems to our allies. Um, and the reality that, you know, to, to only overstate it a tiny bit, the reality that the Chinese are stealing the technology from any of them. And then we turn around and tell our allies we can't and partners that they can't have it, uh, or that they're going to at back of a you know three-year process just doesn't make any sense. We've got to do better on that. 
uh, and that will involve uh, not just selling them things, but working with them and sharing some technologies and taking some risk in that regard so that we're aiming to not protect everything, but only protect the crown jewels. And we're aiming to succeed by moving faster on technology and innovation, not by, uh, not by having a, 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 a giant set of, of, uh, of elements in our, in our force that our allies can't access. I'll stop there. Great. Yeah, thanks, David. I mean, I think, you know, I think the scale of the geopolitical challenge is so grave that it, it requires a fundamental overhaul of our, of our sort of defense, our whole sort of political military strategy, certainly since the end of the Cold War, which basically rests on the United States clearly at the top and everybody's sort of subordinate, if not totemic elements. And people like Jim Thomas have been saying this for years, but I think the key point here is the primary theater's got to be the Western Pacific. And there, you know, Japan is the third largest economy in the world, or fourth, depending on how you measure it. We need them to be like West Germany in, uh, in the Cold War, which is to say a very robust conventional military dedicated to collective defense, Dave, as you, as you said. There's no war that the Japanese would be in that we wouldn't be in. We, why don't we have a combined forces command? They should double their defense spending yesterday. They should spend it on things that are relevant for a Western Pacific scenario. I mean, if Taiwan falls, I don't see how we sustain the Senkakus. I mean, it's like a hop, skip, and a jump away from Taiwan. Um, so, I mean, my view is we actually have a crisis with our, in our U.S.-Japan relationship now because we don't seem to recognize that we're in a crisis, which means that we are in a crisis. That's like the real crisis. <laughs> and same with Taiwan. And I think we're in Europe, we should as much as possible be basically having what actually was kind of Eisenhower's original vision to some extent, which is Europeans basically performing the conventional defense. And we can provide the kind of you know, boutique sort of high-end stuff that Jim was mentioning. But I think that's a fundamental model. We should open the floodgates. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the things that, that I think the Pentagon was starting to do uh, somewhat belatedly, but I think commendably at the end of the Trump administration, the guidance for the development of allies and partners, let's pool force development capability. Let's think about posture and operational concepts and, and excuse me, plans as much as possible together, particularly with countries like Australia and Japan that really are going to be integrated with us. And I think that's the basic model and it requires a different attitude where we really aren't this sort of unipole anymore. It doesn't, I mean, that, that's, not, that's not lashing our, our, you know, our backs, that's just a reality. And now we got to adapt to that to deal with the, the, new, the new battlefields that we're, that we're dealing with. So I'll take it. All right, well, gentlemen, thanks very much for your insights. Um, I think your comments reinforce the need uh, for defense planners, Congress and the American public uh, to have an open and honest uh, discussion about ends, ways, and means, um, or else risk uh, strategic insolvency. Uh, now, Jim and Bridge, on behalf of Mitchell Institute uh, and all of uh, AFA, uh, we, we wish you the very best to help shape the path forward in this uh, era of ever-increasing challenges. And as I promised, uh, Bridge up front, for those of you who are hearing more about his perspectives, uh, do a pre-order of his upcoming book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power uh, Conflict. Um, it, uh, in it, it talks about why and how America's defense strategy needs to change in light of China's power and ambition. And that's some of the stuff that we talked about today. It'll be coming out the uh, middle of uh, September. So with that, let's uh, open it up to questions from uh, the audience. Please uh, state your name and association uh, uh, you're affiliated with when I call on you. Let's start off with uh, Steve Tremble. Steve. 
Yes, hi, uh, Steve Tremble, Aviation Week. Um, uh, thank you for that uh, conversation. Um, uh, so on, on the Pacific side um, and, and on long range strike capacity, you know, we've seen over the past year, South Korea, uh, you know, with the agreement on ballistic missile, indigenous ballistic missile development, Japan's investing in hypersonic light vehicles and cruise missiles. And Australia has just uh, uh, joined in with SciFire for hypersonic cruise missiles. How much does that relieve that, um, that long range strike munition gap uh, to, or to what extent can you build it into a force structure plan like this? And then secondly, with the export reform comments that you were talking about or increasing access, would you add the B-21 to that list of exportable items if say Australia or Japan or South Korea wanted to afford it? Uh, Steve, Mark Hesinger, I'll start very quickly. Um, it's great to see our allies and partners making investments in those kinds of munitions. I see them as additive and complementary. I do not see that they are going to significantly reduce our requirements, and we shouldn't use that as an excuse to not pump up our investments in long-range strike capabilities, including, of course, uh, munitions. As for the B-21, all security issues aside, I think it would be great to see, for example, the United Kingdom to uh, have a uh, long-range strike capability once again. Anyone else care to comment on that one? Well, I think I think the only thing I'd add is you, this is where the integration with the allies is really necessary. If you can't if you can't command and control, if you don't if you're not prepared, if you're not positioned in the right place, it doesn't do much for you. I mean, I think that's where, you know, the Australians are really good. Guinea pig is not, not the right term for our, our Australian friends, but, you know, so, somebody to really try to work out the kinks with. But I think that's where we would want to get with the, the Australians and the Japanese or the Koreans, uh, hopefully, but, you know, there's more political difficulty there vis-a-vis -vis China. Yeah, I just, a, a quick comment. I agree that it's helpful that the, our allies are developing more strike capabilities, but fundamentally agree with Gonzo. Uh, our requirement is still very substantial and we're well short. Uh, and I think we should be looking for both creative basing arrangements for B-21s, including UK and Australia, uh, uh, and, and have that conversation with our allies first, and then have conversation about whether they're interested in, in, in buying into the program as well. Very good. Okay, how about John Turpak? Yes, good morning. Thanks, gentlemen. Uh, the Air Force has been uh, pushing for a roles and missions debate uh, on just these topics for a number of years. There's been a, a lot of resistance, even from General Hyten. Uh, what do you think is the reason for the resistance at that level? And realistically, what are the odds that this is some, sometime going to happen? Uh, Mark here. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, I helped co-lead the department's last roles and missions review, which essentially came to naught for the same reason why uh, a number of them have, and that is they challenge services rice bowls. Uh, they challenge programs of record. That's exactly what needs to happen today. They need to be challenged. Uh, I'm all for a focused, not overall sweeping two year long review, but a focused review. Better yet, I'm all in favor of some decisions in some critical roles and missions areas that uh, uh, frankly have been studied to death over the years. I would just pile in, uh, and here I have, I, uh, coming from a somewhat similar perspective as Gonzo, I think, but phrasing it a little differently. I'm more uh, interested in the reality of 
what happens with force structure and capabilities uh, uh, and the operational capability of, of US military than on having a debate over, uh, over specific roles and responsibilities. We, we know that we're short in critical areas. We know the type of capabilities, including bombers with long range munitions, including undersea warfare that needs to be ramped up. Let's do it. Okay, very cool. good. I'm gonna uh, uh, switch over to the uh, uh, chat section on questions. Here's one from Steven uh, Schenkel. Uh, quote, integrated deterrence is becoming a new buzzword, not a bad concept. And we seem to talk about conventional forces separate and apart from nuclear forces and recapitalizing them. Do you think there needs to be a better integrated understanding of the connection between nuclear forces and conventional capabilities in the deterrence equation, unquote? I'm gonna jump in here real quick up front and say, if we continue to keep on underfunding our conventional forces, as has been the case, we're gonna to have to start considering potentially the use of lower yield nuclear weapons as a means to offset our conventional weakness. Okay, over to you, Bridge, Jim. Yeah, well, Dave, I, I actually agree with you. I don't think that's a good place. I mean, I, I assume you don't either, right? I know you don't, but uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think either that or, 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 or backing off or something, horizontal escalation strategies don't work. I'll say, I mean, I think, um, you know, Gonzo, I think, and, and Lucas were getting at this in the protracted point. That's where it really becomes most relevant. Something I talk about in my book, uh, and thanks again for the kind mention, um, is, is managing that, that, that threshold. And I think this is where we can pick up on some of the stuff from the late 70s and, and 80s, where thinking about conventional warfare under the nuclear shadow, um, but where part of the appeal of the kind of punishment end of the denial, the denial from punishment is that it's more sort of uh, readily uh, perceived as, as limited. You know, that what we, what we want to do is, and it's about war termination. We want to end the war basically with our defense perimeter restored. We're not trying to occupy China. We're not going to do regime change or any of that stuff uh, for multiple reasons. But so we're going to really need to think about that because obviously B-21s are going to carry conventional and nuclear. They're going to be going all over places if, if we're successful, if we're lucky. So we're, you know, this is, this is an area actually back to Dave's original question where I didn't feel like we got as far as I, I had hoped, but where we signaled in the NDS the focus on escalation management, not escalation control, but not ignoring the problem uh, or not being a lot of the conversation, particularly in the academy, I think tends to be spooked in a sense. They, they say, oh, well, if you go hit the Chinese mainland, there's a risk of nuclear escalation. Well, yeah, of course there is. But if we're not willing to hit the Chinese mainland, we're going to lose. So we're obviously going to hit the Chinese mainland. The question is where, how, with what signaling? That kind of thing, and that needs to be, this is where the civilians and the uniforms really need to be in, in a kind of a vigorous discussion or debate. Uh, so I think that's true. You know, to the last administration's credit, I mean, conventional nuclear integration was a big thing. People like Greg Weaver really know this stuff. So hopefully that's continuing. I will say a little bit of a, I don't want it to sound like a cheap shot. The integrated deterrence moniker worries me because like my experience and my sense in the department, especially given the constraints and the severity is let's keep it simple, stupid. The great thing about the, the RAND Achmanic standard is if we can do that, we'll be okay and everybody can kind of work towards it. It's, I'm, there's a better way of thinking about it you know, in the platonic universe, but in a large organization like the defense establishment, we need people to be focused. And when I hear integrated, Sounds like, well, hey, you know, and, and to, to Gonzo's point, well, that that thing, you know, yes, my thing, my platform or my force posture won't help you in your denial of the fait complete, 
but it's a, it's integrated. It helps reassure allies or it, you know, there's a horizontal escalation thing and it's like, no, 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 we're not, we can't do that anymore. We got to just be, are you killing ships in, in the strait? And I get, I realize that's too reductive, but it's that level that I think we need to be at at this point, given how, how bad things are and how short we are money-wise. Two quick points. I, I like the integrated deterrence concept and I see it applicable primarily to information and political warfare, gray zone conflict, countering coercion, keeping allied cohesion and so forth. Uh, we still need the military capabilities that Bridge was talking about, the, the strike capabilities and ISR and so forth. Uh, and second, Dave, I think your proposal is a bad idea whose time I hope never comes. And it, uh, it reinforces, uh, 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 and your, I think your point is that if it's going to come because we're unwilling to step up to the long range conventional strike stuff, let's face it. If that's the choice the president's gonna have, lose or go nuclear, let's face it, let's not pretend it's otherwise. It's a hell of a lot better choice to build the capabilities to effectively uh, defeat if necessary, show that capability for deterrence by denial and have a credible deterrence uh, through conventional means. I, and I think my guess is as I'm seeing heads nod that we all agree on that point. It, the stakes are high. Well, thank you, Jim. And I'll be perfectly transparent. What I'm trying to do is get people's attention. Okay, if you don't fund this capability to allow us to defer, deter, and then if necessary, fight and win conventionally, then we're gonna to have to start considering low yield nukes. Maybe that might get people's attention anyway. Well, and I, sorry, I'll just say, I don't, that's not, that's not the end of it. I mean, we're gonna go there and that doesn't solve our, it's not a magic solution. And I know you, I know you know that. Obviously. Oh, I know it's not, but it, it, exactly. what I'm looking for is right. to get somebody's yeah. attention. Exactly. Yeah. Because until we get realization in the American public and in the Congress, uh, we're going to continue to tread water. So with that happy point, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of uh, Mitchell's uh, rollout of our report, building a force that wins recommendations for the 2022 national defense strategy. It really was um, a special honor to have you both bridge and uh, Jim uh, with us today. Thank you so much for uh, joining. Uh, and from all of us at Mitchell Institute to you both and everyone in the audience, have a great aerospace power kind of day. Thank you, gentlemen.